Let's begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. And as we always do when we study scripture, we ask that your Holy Spirit enlighten us and give us a sense of discernment to understand what it is you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. We ask that you be with us tonight as we try to cover a great deal of detail, but that it's important as all Scripture is. So we thank you for this effort tonight. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Before we begin the regular uh, meeting on the subject for tonight, I'd like you to uh, take one of the handouts that you gave us, or that I gave you, in, or it was back there on the, on the table, and this has to do with the questions that I couldn't or I wouldn't ask, answer last week, uh, partly because there's times when I'm faced with a question that I'm just not prepared to answer, and rather than giving you a, you know, a, a line of hot air, uh, I'd rather look it up and come back the following the week. And that is what I've done here with two questions. And the reason I wrote it out is because the person that asked what is the second question on here isn't here tonight, and he told me he wouldn't be, so I didn't want uh, it to be forgotten. Uh, the first question had to do with a statement in chapter 16. And if you'll turn to that, 16, uh, verse 8, where it says the application of the parable. It says, for the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And the question was, what really does that mean? Well, you have to t read the whole uh, first part of chapter 16 to get the gist of what is going on here. But what is meant by that statement is that the Jewish people were so entrenched in the Mosaic laws. And you can understand this because after nearly 2,000 years, this is all they knew. This is all they were taught is the Mosaic law and there were 613 laws within the Mosaic law, and that is what they sort of worshipped at the time of Christ. And Christ was trying to change that. He was trying to get them to look beyond just laws and obeying and worshipping laws and worshipping the God that they were supposed to be. And so what he's really saying here. It would take a stick of dynamite to get some of those laws out of people's minds because they don't voluntarily want to give them up. And it goes back to uh, a couple other references in the Bible. For example, remember we talked about pouring new wine into old wineskins. And we said the new wine represented the new teachings of Christ. But people who were so fixed in their mind with the Jewish law would have a difficult time in accepting those. And so, to, so what you had to do is talk about putting or, or accepting the, the words and the teachings of Christ with a whole new attitude. So we're talking here about attitude more than anything else. And so 
when it says the children of this world are more prudent in dealing with the own generation, means that in dealing with their own ideas and concepts that had been in place for 2,000 years, more so than the children of light. And now there's two ways of looking at that. The people of Jesus' time, the Jewish people that refused to accept him, were somewhat materialistic because many of them didn't believe in the hereafter or life after death. And so their concept was, you either get all your riches and enjoy your life here on earth in accordance with the Mosaic law, because that's all there is. And those who believe in life after death and the whole idea of eternal life as Christ was trying to teach them, no longer believe that. So they weren't clinging to this materialistic idea of the, of the Jewish laws. So you've got sort of two ways of looking at that. Does that explain, Anna, does that sort of help you? All right. That, that I would understand that, yes. Uh, and all you can do is, is accept the fact that if they're not accepting Christ, they're excluding themselves from eternal life in heaven with God. And so whatever, you see, they have immortal souls just as Christians who accept Christ have immortal souls. And they will, unfortunately, uh, be excluded from, from heaven and live in their whatever there is. Now, I can't go any further than that because I really don't have any other uh, or better explanation. I've looked this up in three different references, three different books, and they all pretty much say the same thing. But they don't explain the word uh, their eternal dwelling, uh, the question that you just brought up. No, it's not a command. It said, if you're not going to accept Christ, then you better make friends with those people who will befriend you and live with them. Yes. I know it's, uh, it's a little fuzzy, but some of those, and that's why I, I didn't want to answer that question last week, because I had to kind of check some resources. Yes. There it was. Of course, the word there is my addition, because that is what it means. Their dwellings, which are, is not Christ, in other words, it's not heaven. Let's go on, because we've got more important things to talk about tonight. The other, the other question there had to do with the fact that it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for the smallest part of a letter. Here you have almost the same kind of thing. Uh, there again, the people were so entrenched in the details of the Mosaic law that they wouldn't look behind that and worship the God that they were supposed to. They worshiped the laws down to the point where it became such a burden they could hardly do anything. But the person that asked the question here was confusing 
that, the Mosaic Law, with the fact that the first covenant was withdrawn and made nullified by the fact that the Jewish people, most of them, did not accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. And in Hebrews and in the book of Galatians, it talks about uh, the first covenant being withdrawn and replaced by the eternal covenant uh, that Christ initiated through his death and resurrection. And that was signified by the destruction of the temple and the Holy of Holies in the year 70 A.D. All right. But you got to remember that the covenant and the Mosaic Law were not the same thing. And that's where I think he got a little confused. The covenant is the promise that was made by God originally to Abraham and then renewed down through the ages. But when they did not accept Christ as Messiah, then Christ, or rather God the Father, withdrew that. And only to the people that accepted Christ did he give the new covenant of eternal life. So that in our Mass, when the priest holds up the consecrated wine, he will say, this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant that is made for the remission of sin of all mankind. All right. So we are under the new covenant. But the covenant and the, you know, the first covenant and the Mosaic law were not the same thing. The covenant was the promise. The Mosaic law was, grew out of the Ten Commandments and was the way in which the Jewish people tried to observe and fill, fulfill the first covenant. But they got really carried away with all of the, the laws and kind of forgot the law of the, the God that they were trying to worship. Well, in some ways, uh, that's kind of correct. But when God established the church, and the, the New Testament is full of comments in reference to the church, this is the way God wishes to be worshipped through the teachings of the church. The church has replaced the Jewish or the Mosaic law. You see, the first covenant was the promise, but it was carried out through the people by observance of the Mosaic law. The second or the eternal covenant that we are under now is still the promise made by God to the people but it's carried out through the administration of the church. This is the way God wanted it, or Christ wanted it, all right? So to those people who say, I don't need all of that because I can worship God just as he is, what they're trying to do is replace what God, through Jesus Christ, has told us. Now, maybe they don't like the church, or, you know, and I can understand that. There's some things about church teaching that I don't particularly care for. But I figure if you're going to belong to the club, you got to obey the rules. And therefore, we have to wait and 
work through the church. This is what Christ has given us to do. We cannot go off on our own. All of these little splinter Christian denominations have done that. They have taken uh, some of the basics and gone off on their own and established, well, this is not what Christ wanted. And this is not being blessed by him. Now, I'm not putting those people down because I feel that any religion is better than none. But God established through Jesus Christ the Catholic Church. And all of these other Christian denominations are splinters or breakoffs from the Catholic Church. Because up until the Protestant Reformation, there was only one Christian church. It was split into two. I admit that by the Greek Catholics and the Roman Catholics. But nevertheless, that made up the church. And everything else is a break off from that. Uh, I'm sorry, just a minute, William. Did that answer your question, Maria? That's right. I agree with you. And that is why we had the Counter-Reformation that was uh, started by the Council of Trent in 1564. All right, And they tried to then balance and do away with those indulgences and the selling of them. Uh, and that's why we have these various ecumenical councils roughly every hundred years, give or take a little, uh, to look at how are we doing this? How are we following the, the uh, dictates and the laws of, of Jesus Christ? And are we doing things right? Uh, and they bring things up to date uh, through that method. <clears throat> Beginning with chapter 17, I have to go through kind of section by section here, and in some we're going to skip, and others we're going to go into a little more detail. I think um, the subject at hand is rather apropos for the beginning of chapter 17, Temptations to Sin. Unfortunately, the rule of that says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That applies to the church as well as anyone else. When things are taken into the individual's hands and done for personal gain, it says here, he said to his disciples, things that cause sin will inevitably occur because we're human and we're weak. But woe to the person through whom they occur. In other words, one person causing, deliberately causing another to sin. That is far, far more serious than when a person commits a sin through normal human weakness though he or she may not intend to do so. It would be better for the person that causes another to sin if a millstone were put around his neck and be thrown into the sea. Well, that's an exaggeration, but there are a lot of exaggerations in the Bible, and you've got to really be careful of them. Okay. And then it goes over to talk about uh, the brother that asks for forgiveness, and uh, one questions, how many times must I forgive my brother? 
And the answer that Jesus gives, and this is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, says, if he wrongs you seven times in one day and returns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, you should forgive him. And it even goes on to about 77 times, or 70 times seven times. And then, of course, it talks about faith. Faith really comes through your desire to have it. Faith comes through prayer. Let's go on to the attitude of a servant. We're talking here about who among you would say to your servant who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here and immediately take your place at table and I will wait on you. Um, would you not rather say to him, prepare something for me to eat, put on your apron and wait on me while I eat and drink and you may eat later when I'm finished? Is he grateful to that servant because he did what was commanded? So should it be with you. When you have done all you have been commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants for we have done what we were obliged to do. This is rather confusing because you're kind of going flipping back and forth. The meaning of all of this is really many people will pat themselves on the back and take credit for just doing or being a good person. I've heard it over and over say, well, why do I have to learn the Bible? Why do I have to do all of this? And Maria, in some ways, it goes right back to what you were saying earlier. Why do I have to do anything that I am told by someone else? Can't I just be a good person? And isn't that sufficient? The answer is no. It is not sufficient. We are all asked to be good persons. What Christ wants us to do is to go beyond that and do more. And that is what this is getting to. The cleansing of the ten leopards. Here again, we're talking about attitude and gratitude. Jesus healed the ten lepers because they came and pleaded with him to heal them. And he heals them and sends them off to the priest because that is what was required by Moses. And one returns. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? And then he said to him, Stand up and go your way. Your faith has saved you. Not only the faith, but the showing of that faith through gratitude. So not only do you have to have the faith, you have to demonstrate your faith. You don't have to go out there and broadcast it, but you have to put it into action. I often talk about, and here is a good example in a way of a person who thinks that all he or she has to do is to um, observe or be in close connection with God. All right? That's what we call a relationship between God and mankind. But God is saying more is required than that. All right? 
what is required is action. Put into, put your faith into action. Alright? So, that you have faith is between you and God. But what is the difference between faith and trust? Action. You're putting that faith into action, and that is trust. The coming of the kingdom. Asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He said in reply, the coming of the kingdom of God cannot be observed. It is not going to be uh, angels blowing trumpets and so forth. <clears throat> no one will announce it. Or no one will say, look, here it is. Or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is among you. We are born with, at baptism, we are given the grace of God. And we bear that grace. We bear actually God within us. That is part of our faith. Alright? So God was, is within us. And once we have realized that and accepted that, and really accept Christ as Lord, as Messiah, as Savior, Redeemer. That is when the kingdom begins. If we never accept Christ mentally and through our heart, then the kingdom cannot begin. And the kingdom will never begin for us if we don't mentally and physically through our heart accept Christ. And so many people don't. They go through schools. They go to church every week, but they don't understand that there's more to it than that. And it's unfortunate. Very unfortunate for them because everything has been offered to them if they don't take the time to absorb it into their mind and their heart, then it's never going to do any good. And all the good actions of being a good person, so to speak, is not really going to benefit them. Sure, they will be recognized as a good person on earth. You're all familiar with the story of the ten virgins, five of them were foolish because they forgot oil for their lamps and they were waiting outside for the bridegroom to, you know, in those days it was the bridegroom that was always the important part of the party. You know, the bride could come whenever. But they were all waiting for the bridegroom to come. This is a, this is a parable now, not a real story. Parable. The point is, at the end of that story, after the bridegroom had come and the five went in because they were there and ready, the other five were off getting oil for their lamps. 
when they came back, the doors were locked. That was common part of the culture in those days. They would lock the doors so that gate crashers wouldn't come into the wedding party. All right. At the end of the story, when the five come back and they rap on the door and try to get in, the bridegroom says, be gone because I never knew you. And what really the allegory or the meaning of that is, for those people who never tried to make friends with Christ here on earth, when they try to get into heaven, Christ is going to say, why should I let you in? Because you never let me know you. How would you feel if that happened to you? So, the point is, you've got to take Christ willfully, longingly, into your heart and soul and accept him and nurture that relationship. That's what it's all about. Then he said to his disciples, the day will come when you will long to... Let me, let me, before we get into this, I didn't talk about the scene. I, how many of you, when you read this, said, gee, there's an awful lot of little details here. There's a lot of little stories that are only two or three verses long, and they don't seem to be really connected. You, you notice that when you're reading it? All right, now think about this. Christ is heading towards Jerusalem in Luke's Gospel here. And in the next three chapters, it's about his preparation for the Last Supper and his passion and death. What he's trying to do is to cram as much of his teachings into his apostles as he possibly can before that time comes. Because these are the last chapters that you're going to have any miracles or any teaching of this kind. The rest will all be more stories of, you know, historical events of Christ's passion, death, and eventual resurrection. So the urgency that you may have noticed from all of this detail being crammed in here is because these are the last teachings that Christ is going to be able to give his disciples. And that's why they're sort of disconnected. Um, and that's kind of why I'm trying to get through as much of this tonight as we can. So if I kind of cut your questions a little short, forgive me, but that's the reason. That's right. They don't. But you see, today... Well, let's put it this way. The apostles didn't have the benefit of going through all of this that we have from the written word here. They had no history. They had no background. They were living it. They couldn't just read it like we can. Um, and I suppose they have the same problem in a way because they're experiencing something that they've never experienced before and it took a while 
after the resurrection to really kind of think about it and start putting it together. And it wasn't until Pentecost when they received this really special grace of the Holy Spirit did they really start understanding. Let's let's pick it up here. Uh, the, The day of the Son of Man. I've been asked many, many times about this question about the Son of Man versus the Son of God. God never called himself. Jesus never called himself the Son of God. And this goes back to the same explanation that I gave you when he was lost in the temple for three days as a teenage kid. Every firstborn Jewish male could call himself the son of God. A son with a small s. Every firstborn Jewish male could call himself the son of God. So if Jesus called himself the son of God, they'd say, ho-hum, what are you going to do for me now? You know, uh, because that wouldn't have meant anything to them other than he was the firstborn male. So, what did he do? He took a phrase that comes from the prophet Ezekiel and Daniel, more so out of the book of Daniel, chapter 7, where Daniel has this dream of angels ministering to God. There understanding their interpretation of God the Father. A man dressed in long white robe with long white hair and very aged. All right, but then along comes this other person who kneels before the Father in Daniel's dream. And he is given power and dominion and glory and honor and so forth and so on that only the Son of the Father would merit. So, the story of the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel also brings out that phrase of about the Son of Man. And it's to mean somebody who is equal, or let's put it this way, somebody who is greater than the angels and therefore equal to God. And all of the Jewish people knew that, although those who were educated knew the scriptures, (coughs) knew what this special person was, somebody equal to God. And that is why Jesus used that term in reference to himself, the Son of Man. I've got papers on it, and I was going to bring some in today if anyone wanted it. I will bring them in next week. I think I walked off and left them, which is one of my favorite habits. Yeah, Uh, I walked off and left them. I do have a paper on this very subject, and I will bring some of it in next week for anyone that wants them. Okay, so let's leave that there. Let's go over to the beginning of chapter 18. Most of chapter 18 is about riches and wealth and honor, etc. Okay? 
please understand, Jesus is not condemning riches and wealth at all. What he's condemning is those people who hold on to their riches and their wealth above all things, above all other considerations, helping the poor, doing things for others, or looking to God for direction into how to use their wealth, their honor, their education, uh, their position, whatever it might be. But uh, the first part is persistence. <laughs> he told them a parable about, about the necessity for, for them to pray always without becoming weary. He said, there is a judge in a certain town who neither feared God nor respected any human being. And the widow in the town used to come and say to him, render a just decision for me against my adversary. For a long time the judge was unwilling, but eventually he thought, well, while it is true that I neither fear God nor respect any human being, because this widow keeps bothering me, I shall deliver a just decision for her lest she finally come and strike me. And the Lord said, pay attention to what the dishonest judge says. Will not God then secure the rights of his chosen ones who call out to him day and night? Will he be slow to answer them? I tell you, he will see to it that justice is done for them speedily. That when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. The whole idea here is persistence in prayer. But there's a qualification. Don't expect your prayers to be answered always in the way you want them to be answered. Oh Lord, I need that lottery out there, that hundred million dollars, etc., etc., to pay my bills. Your prayer should be in line with your relationship to Christ. If God, if you have a relationship with God, you will know what is right for you and what isn't. Or that should be something that you should pray about. Okay. But nevertheless, when you are doing something that you know is right, particularly for someone else, that is part of your particular role in God's plan of salvation, God cannot deny you the tools or the ability or the resources to fulfill that role. And therein, you can be assured of your prayer being answered, perhaps in another way than you would like, but always your prayer will be answered. Is that clear? You can't ask for just anything. It's got to be in line with your particular role in God's plan of salvation and what God wants for you. And if all of those things line up, then God can't forget, for, forbid or, or neglect giving you what you've asked for. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
He then addressed this parable to those who were convinced of his own righteousness and despised everyone else. Two people went up to the temple area to pray. <clears throat> One was a Pharisee. Jesus was always hard on the Pharisees because they were such shallow people, shallow in their religious life. A Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee took up his position and spoke this prayer to himself. Oh God, I think that I am not like the, I thank you that I am not like the rest of humanity. Wow. Greedy, dishonest, adulterous, etc., or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. But the tax collector stood off at a distance. It would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and prayed, O oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, the latter went home justified, but not the former. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So there again, humility over pride, always. <coughs> Let's move over to the uh, rich official. An official asked this question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, some of the Jewish people did believe in life after death, and others did not. And so you have this mixture, and Jesus is, you know, never going to know who's going to challenge him or where he's coming from. But this person kind of lays it out rather clearly. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, why do you call me good? Kind of catching the guy off guard. No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you should not kill, you should not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and etc. And the official replied, all of these I have observed from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, there is still one thing left for you. Sell all you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when this official heard this, he became quite sad, for he was very rich. Again, a person who was challenged to sell everything they have. And this is, an, this is a, uh, sort of a, a story or a parable again, because... Jesus is not telling people, get rid of all of your possessions. Because if everyone got rid of their possessions, if you think about it, if everyone got rid of their possessions, those possessions wouldn't be of any value to anyone, would they? Because no one would want them. All right. So he's not really talking about that kind of extreme. What he's talking about here is clinging to your possessions like you would almost cling to a lifesaver, a wrap, um, a lifesaver in a way, all right? 
That is not what possessions are for. Possessions are to be used for your own needs and then for the benefit of others. Going on again, because as I said, so much of this is having to do with riches and the denunciation of riches. And again, what he's really doing is talking to his disciples. Because he's getting them ready to face real tough times. In the next few chapters, 21 through 20, 22 through 23, he is going to be facing death and they are deathly afraid of getting caught in the same thing. But later on, when they come out of that, after the resurrection, they don't care any longer about that, particularly after the first first Pentecost, like Frank had mentioned earlier. Um, those things are no longer important. That is, death and, and facing uh, tough times. Jesus looked at the rich man, now sad, and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, Then who can be saved? You see, they're still clinging to this old Jewish idea that all the rich people were being favored by God and all the poor people or those who were having problems of any kind were sinners. And Jesus is trying to get them to change their attitude on that very subject. As for this eye of the needle thing, that is just a figure of speech. It is an exaggeration which is very common in Jewish culture and particularly in Jewish writing. There is no such thing as the eye of a needle or a camel going through the eye of a needle. All right. Um, there were stories in the Crusades during the time of the Crusades, but that was nearly a thousand years later, um, that they found the eye of the needle. It was like finding the Holy Grail and so forth and so on. No such thing. It was just a figure of speech. All right. Uh, if you look down in about three quarters of the page here, it tells you that. There is no evidence anywhere in the Mideast, however, of any gate called the eye of the needle. In addition, camels are unable to crawl. Okay. Jesus is using a form of hyperbole, exaggeration, that is a natural part of Semitic speech. Okay, so I didn't want to burst anyone's bubbles here, but uh, unfortunately that's the way it is. <coughs> Excuse me. The third prediction of the Passion, remember we had two predictions earlier, says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. 
I want you to underline that statement, and then when we get to chapter 24, we'll bring it up again. Everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. And put down there, see chapter 24. But don't turn to that now. We'll do that uh, two weeks from tonight. He will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And after that, after they have scourged him, they will then kill him. But on the third day he will rise. But unfortunately, the apostles and the disciples understood none of this. The word remained hidden from them, and they failed to comprehend what he said. I just know you're going to ask a question, Anna. Okay. The healing of the blind beggar. Now he has approached uh, Jericho. A blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. <clears throat> and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what was happening. And they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing. He shouted, Jesus, son of David. Have pity on me. The people walked in front, rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he kept calling out. See, here's a blind person. He is automatically declared a sinner, and therefore he is not thought pretty, you know, he's pushed out of the way because he is a sinner, automatically classified as such. All right. The people walking in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he kept calling out all the more, Son of David, have pity on me. Then Jesus stopped and ordered that he be brought to him. And when he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he replied, Lord, please let me see. Jesus told him, Have sight. Your faith has saved you. He immediately received his sight and followed him, giving glory to God. When they saw this, all the people gave praise to God. Yeah, Zacchaeus is almost a similar uh, story. Here you have a, a short little guy who wants to see Jesus, but because he is short and uh, there's a big crowd there, he runs ahead, climbs a tree, and so forth and so on uh, in order to see Jesus. And when Jesus gets near this tree, he sees uh, Zacchaeus up there, and he says, Come down quickly, for today I must stay at your house. And he came down quickly and received him with joy. And when they saw this, they began to grumble, because, again, he's automatically declared a sinner, because he's a tax collector and in cahoots with the Romans. He has gone to stay at the assaults of a sinner, they said. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I shall repay it four times over. And Jesus said to him, Today this salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a descendant of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. The point of this story, as well as the others, is how far God will go to reclaim what is lost. 
he will give the benefit of the doubt to the worst of the worst sinners or anyone who has neglected him or offended him in any way. And he will do everything that is possible to get that person to come back. And that is kind of what this is all about. Next week, when we get in, into the passion and uh, sufferings of Christ, uh, that's all the more evident, I think. Uh, the next story here of the parable of the lost uh, the ten gold coins. I think we've had a similar story here before this uh, about a nobleman went off to a distant country to obtain the kingship for himself and then to return. He called ten of his servants and gave them ten gold coins and told them to engage in trade with these until he returned. His fellow citizens, however, despised him and sent a delegation after him to announce, we don't want this man to be our king. But when he returned, after obtaining the kingship, he had the servants called to whom he had given the money to learn what they had gained by trading. The first came forward and said, Sir, your gold coin has earned ten additional ones, etc. This goes on and on until the last guy um, <clears throat> is afraid. I, he says, I was afraid of you because you are a demanding person. You take up what you did not lay down and you harvest what you did not plant. He said to him, with your own words, I shall condemn you for you wicked servant. In other words, the last one didn't do anything with the coin except bury it and returned it safely, but with no additional earnings. And so he didn't use the talents in some of the other synoptic gospels. Instead of coins, it's talents. And we are all given talents of different kinds, abilities, not necessarily money, but abilities that we can use regardless of what our age or other circumstances might be. We can use these abilities to help others. Um, and that is what we are here for, to collectively give part of ourselves to God through others. The same thing as this little diagram up here. Yes? Well, let's, let's put it this way, William. I understand what you're getting at. If you go to the first letter of John in the back of your, your Bibles, and I don't mean to do it now, but go to 1 John chapter 4. It says that God is love. Right? Everybody understands that. Except God is love. And if you live in the state of love of your neighbor, regardless of who your neighbor might be, friends, relatives, distance, even unknown, but you live in the state of love, then God lives within you. If God lives within you and you die in that particular state, then the church says you are eligible to go to heaven. That's as much as I can explain. I cannot take individuals such as the Dalai Lama or anyone else and say, does that guy qualify for heaven? 
I'm not the judge. And I don't want to be the judge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's essentially what I said. Uh, and that's what I, I meant. You can't get down to the very detailed specifics. You have to kind of leave it in a generalized form that if a person, as you just said, believes in God and they live in that mode of love, regardless of what their culture is, you take, you know, some of the primitive Indian tribes. Um, they had some rather uh, unusual practices, but if they lived and recognized a supreme being of God, and most of them did, and lived a good life with love as its primary force, then God lived in them. And then they are eligible not just automatically, but they are eligible for heaven. But you have to leave the final decision up to God. That's not us. <clears throat> with chapter 19, beginning with verse 28, we now enter into this final journey, the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem. And it's important that you kind of reorient your thinking now. Jesus is pretty much through his teaching. Yes, much of his preparation will still be a way of looking at what he's teaching, even as we get into the, the next uh, chapter. But nevertheless, he's really through teaching in a constant concentrated way his apostles and disciples. And now we're heading towards the journey that leads to his passion and death. The entry into Jerusalem, after he had said all of this, in other words, now the teaching end of his ministry has pretty well ended. He proceeded on his journey up to Jerusalem. And as he drew near Bethpage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples, and he said, Go into the village opposite you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tethered on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone should ask you, Why are you untying it? You will answer, The master has need of it. So those who had been sent off found everything just as he had told them. And they asked, the, the owner asked, why are you untying this coal? And they answered, the master has need of it. So they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks over the coal, and Jesus, and helped Jesus to mount. As he rode along, the people were spreading their cloaks on the road, and now he was approaching the slope of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to praise God aloud with joy, for all the mighty deeds they had seen. Now, this is what we celebrate as the entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Okay, This is the scene that is uh, honored and commemorated on Palm Sunday, and that is the waving of the palms and, and the hosannas and all of that. 
They proclaim, blessed is he. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's interesting because every few few years these words seem to change. I don't know how that happens, but they do. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said in reply, I tell you, if they keep silent, the stones will cry out the same words, really, will cry out the same. This whole idea of riding on a colt comes out of uh, the Old Testament somewhere, so I forgot just exactly one of the Old Testament prophets. And it is simple. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, Zechariah. Zechariah, prophet Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verse 9. It's right in the center of, or two-thirds down on your page here, mentioned. That is a symbol of royalty. Royalty always rode on a very young animal and always side saddle for some reason or other, or no saddle. Um, side saddle we would call it today. Uh, or no saddle was a symbol of royalty. And he would have <coughs> cloaks over the animal before he sat down on it. Uh, and this is sort of to, in a way, prophesy that the king of kings and the lord of lords was entering into Jerusalem. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if, th if this day you only knew what makes for peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days are coming upon you when your enemies will raise a palisade against you. They will encircle you and hem you in on all sides. They will smash you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another within you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This was prophesied earlier when there was um, the apostles were still uh, at another time talking about the temple and how beautiful the temple how beautiful the temple was and so forth. And Jesus said, um, yes, but a time will come when not a stone will be left upon a stone. And that happened, of course, in the year 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and most importantly the temple. Uh, it was it claimed, it was claimed, uh, not proven, but it was claimed that the mortar uh, that this temple was glued together with had precious stones embedded into the mortar. And the Romans, when they destroyed the temple, chiseled those stones apart to get some of these, the mortar and, and the precious stones out of it so that this prophecy came true at that time. Not a stone was left upon a stone. Okay. 
And that again, that destruction of the temple in 70 AD was, uh, was uh, the signal that God withdrew the first covenant altogether. He gave the Jewish people the proverbial or the biblical 40 years to at least change their mind and accept Christ. And once they didn't, uh, the temple was destroyed with the Holy of Holies in it, never to be rebuilt. Right, but coming at the same period of time, the cleansing of the temple. Again, this is something that is generally read on Palm Sunday in all of our churches. Then Jesus entered the temple area and proceeded to drive out those who were selling things, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And every day he was teaching in the temple area. The chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people, meanwhile, were seeking to put him to death. But they could find no way to accomplish this for their purpose, because all of the people were hanging Excuse me, all of the people were hanging on his words. So you can see the time is drawing closer and closer. The cleansing of the temple is an interesting story. The temple, in fact, I think there's a diagram in the back of your book. Yes, if you go to the very last page, 168, there is a diagram of the temple. And you have a number of courtyards. As you can see, the various lines are the courtyards, and the very smallest one is the Holy of Holies. Now, the altar was way outside, not outside the walls, but outside of the inner court. And I, we've talked about that before, because if they are... Uh, burning animals, you could imagine the stench and the smoke and everything else. So therefore, it could not be done inside a building. So the altar was actually outside. The only thing that was inside was the Holy of Holies, and candles and that kind of thing. All right, And the Holy of Holies was sort of equal to what our tabernacle is in our churches. It was the place that God was represented and uh, was present in their temple. And up until the Babylonian exile in the 6th century B.C., the Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant, which had inside of it the, temp the tablets of the Ten Commandments and a few other things. Well, that was destroyed at that particular time in 7587 AD. And this temple here was the second temple. Okay. Now, the selling of animals took or should have taken place in the extreme outer walls, not outside the walls, but along the outer walls of the temple. But what was happening here is they were making it more important in encroaching on the holier parts of the temple. And so the original usage or the original selling of animals in the temple was acceptable in the beginning, but not later on. 
because it became more important than the temple itself. And furthermore, uh, it is thought that there was a lot of cheating going on, and Christ wanted to stop the whole thing because it was given way out of hand. That's what that is all about. One day as he was teaching the temple, in the temple, the people in the temple area proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders approached him and said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Meaning the turning of the, um, you know, chasing out of the cellars of animals and other kinds of things. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And he said to them in reply, let me ask you a question. Tell me, was John's baptism of heavenly or human origin? Remember we talked about the Bible being written on both earthly and spiritual levels? That's exactly the question that he's asking here. Was John of earthly origin or a spiritual origin. They discussed this among themselves and said, if we say of heavenly origin, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, then all the people will stone us, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know from where it came. And then Jesus said to them, and neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he sort of turns the tables on them. Now, he then goes and tells the people, the disciples, apostles, and others, this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and then went on a journey. Now, this is a parable, keep in mind, for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenant farmers to receive some of the produce of the vineyard. But they beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. So he proceeded to send another servant. But him also they beat and insulted and sent away empty-handed. Then he proceeded to send a third, but this one too they wounded and threw out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I shall send my beloved son. Maybe they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they said to one another, This is the heir. Let us kill him, that the inheritance might become ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard, killed him, and when the owner of the vineyard, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? <coughs> Excuse me. He will come and put these tenant farmers to death and turn over the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they exclaimed, Let it not be so. But he looked at them and asked, What then does the scripture passage mean? The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be dashed to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him at that very hour, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had addressed this parable to them. Now, 
the parable itself is really a disguised version of their own history. During the Jewish monarchy, which began with King Saul in the 11th century BC, all the way down to the Babylonian captivity, it was in the 6th century BC, a period of 500 years roughly. All right. It was the Jewish monarchy that was established particularly uh, with Saul, as I said, and then David and Solomon, and that part was all right. But after that, it just went downhill and was extremely uh, anti-Jewish faith. The kings that came along, and there was roughly 50 of them in that 500-year time period. Israel was split in two again after David had brought it together uh, back much earlier. It was split into two, and each half, the northern half, which was called Israel, and the southern half, which was called Judah, became very wicked, sinful. In fact, even to the point of worshiping foreign gods. You heard of uh, Queen Jezebel and her husband Ahaz. Uh, Jezebel was sort of a synonymous uh, name for wickedness and so forth and so on. And that's because she was not a Jew uh, and she wanted uh, her husband Ahaz, who lived in the southern kingdom, to get everybody to worship uh, Baal who was a pagan god, so to speak, with a small g. Anyways, the prophets were then brought in by God. God could have wiped all of those people out, but that would have taken their free will away from them. All right. So to balance the wickedness of the evil kings who led the people astray, God brings in the prophets. And they appear on the scene about the same time, confronting the kings. All right. But each one of them was eventually killed outside of the walls of Jerusalem because the people didn't like what they said. Particularly the kings didn't like what they said. Even those from the north were chased around and finally captured and killed outside of the walls of Jerusalem. So what this story is saying here is a complete disguised history of their own people. The servants were sent by God as the prophets were sent by God. And they were all murdered by the tenant and the, yeah, the tenant farmers. This happened two or three times just exactly as this story is. And finally, Jesus himself comes, the son of God, the son of the king, and tries to convince these people, and they take him outside the walls and kill him also. So this is a prediction, you might say, of two things. Their own, the failure of the Jewish people to recognize God's hand in all of this and to the failure to accept Jesus uh, as their Messiah because 
they didn't like what he had to say. And he ends up in the same way that all the prophets did. Well, we know that he's going to return, but it is going to be in glory, and he won't, they won't have that opportunity. Thank God for that. Let's go on here, because I want to close this out uh, for the evening. <clears throat> Paying taxes to the emperor. This is where we have that very famous quotation uh, from that great prophet John Wayne. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. John Wayne played that centurion or whatever uh, in, uh, in uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Franco, Franco Zalparelli uh, movie called Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, he has those famous lines, render to Caesar. I have a copy of that at home, and I'd love to hear that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Paying taxes, yes, you know, this is, this is one of those uh, stories that sort of is at the end of a person's life. But it all is whether or not we have an obligation to honor legal authority. And the answer is yes. We have an honest obligation to accept and um, honor legal authority. Uh, and that's all this is really all about. Uh, I want to go over to page uh, 133. This is one of my favorite little stories. And uh, it's a, a riddle. Then Jesus said to them, how do they claim, well, we got to back up a little bit here, the question of the resurrection. Now, I don't want to read all of that because it's, it's not that pertinent to what is going on here. Uh, if we start, say, at verse 37 on the previous page, the dead will rise even Moses made known to the passage about the bush when he called Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For to him all are alive. Some of the scribes said to him, Teacher, you have answered well, and, and they no longer dared to ask him anything. But then... He said to them, how do they claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself in the book of Psalms says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How, if David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son? Jesus is David's son because he is a descendant. But he is David's Lord because he's God. Simple as that. But you see the two levels? If you look at it only as earthly level, they would never be able to answer that question. So you have to understand 
that Jesus is both God and man. Is that clear? But see, these people didn't understand that and didn't want to understand that. And therefore, they could never have answered this little riddle. Uh, well, uh, you know, that's what faith is all about. You you can't make a person you can't make a person believe. They've got to want to believe. And once they believe, then they've got to do something about it. And these people, of course, that he was addressing, the Pharisees particularly, did not want to believe. And therefore, they could never answer that question. Any other questions before we leave? If you look at your homework uh, reading assignment, I should say, I don't like call, calling it homework. That sounds like fifth grade school teacher. <laughs> the whole idea of the next three chapters discusses the passion and the death of Christ. You've all heard the story many, many, many times. Not only at Easter time, but frequently throughout the year. I do not want to dwell on what happened. I want to dwell on why it happened next week. All right. I had a person call me, somebody who had been in my classes in Southern California many years ago. Uh, this person called me just recently and couldn't understand why Jesus had to go through such a horrific death, um, why it was necessary at all. Obviously, um, either this person forgot what I was teaching in those days or still didn't quite understand, but at least the, the call was made to try to better understand. So I thought it was very uh, timely uh, because this was just last Sunday uh, that they called me. So it's more important that you understand why all of these things happen. So please, if you have questions, write them down and bring them in because I want you to clearly understand because in two weeks you're going to be going through uh, the same readings in church, and it will help you to better understand the whole events leading up to Good Friday and then following that with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So again, uh, bring your questions in, but try to understand what you are reading, but more important, why it had to happen. Okay. Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time tonight. We thank you always for the time to study Holy Scripture, during which we want to hear from you. And through the Scripture, we want to get direction and guidance for our life in general. So open our minds and our hearts to accept what we can, but make sure that it is always from you. So we thank you for this time together. 
We ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forward. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.